a reading from Revelation 6 and 7. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. 
from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about one half hour. The word of the Lord. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Psalm 13. birth control, Ho Chi Minh, Richard Nixon back again, Moonshot, Woodstock, Watergate, Punk Rock, Begin, Reagan, Palestine, terror on the airline, Ayatollahs in Iran, Russia's in Afghanistan, Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride, heavy metal, suicide, foreign debts, homeless vets, AIDS crack, Bernie gets, hypodermics on the shore, China's under martial law, rock and roller, cola wars, I can't take it anymore. Sing it, boomers. We didn't start the fire. 
It was always burning since the world was turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Oh, come on. I know you know that song. (laughs) Billy Joel wrote that song after a conversation with Sean Lennon, John's son, when Sean was turning 21. Sean was bemoaning how hard it was to be turning 21 in the late 80s. Billy Joel decided that he was turning 40 that year. He would go back over his 40 years from 1949 to 1989, choose 100 headlights, and write this song, We Didn't Start the Fire, to say that it's hard in every age to be 21. Even in AD 90, Eugene Peterson captures this. The puzzling ascendancy of evil must have occupied many Christian minds at the time of St. John's exile. Remember that St. John is writing the Revelation as a political prisoner in jail on the island of Patmos. If the kingdom of God has been inaugurated by Christ, why are Roman armies so much in evidence? The gospel declared God's love for the world. Roman decrees put the people who believed it in prisons and on crosses. Christ lived, suffered, died, and rose again, and the world was getting worse and not better. Annie Dillard asked the question that presses for an answer in this kind of world. She ranks it as the chief theological question of all time. What in the Sam Hill is going on here anyway? Welcome to the unveiling, the revelation. At the center of reality is a slaughtered lamb, which means that the purpose of reality is to follow the lamb wherever he goes. But how in the world do we do that amidst the puzzling ascendancy of evil where the world feels on fire? Folks, most preachers, when they get to where we are in Revelation, switch to a preaching series on marriage or finances. But not Waterstone. Uh Uh-uh. You asked for it. I'm just telling you, you asked for it. We go on to Revelation chapter 6, and it's going to get very hard. In three ways. The interpretative challenges from Revelation 6 on until we get to around chapter 20 are just difficult. As Billy said earlier, and those of you who are visiting with us, those of you who are checking out Christianity, I want you to be encouraged in this one thing. I've lived with Revelation for over a year, and it's put me flat in my back a few times, and I still don't know what the heck half of it means. Part of that is because of the kind of literature that it is. It's not meant to be understood point by point, image by image. It's apocalyptic literature, which means it's an experience more than it is an intellectual lecture. We are to experience revelation. But the interpretation is going to get hard. 
Secondly, the images are troubling. Can you imagine sitting down at the text that Ginny just read and reading that to your children at the dinner table? I mean, the revelation makes an M. Night Shyamalan movie like The Sixth Sense or Signs look like the Berenstein Bears. It's troubling. And then thirdly, it's hard because things are going to get spiritually demanding from here on in. The lamb slaughtered is at the center of reality, which means the purpose of reality is follow the lamb, which means we have to follow him even when it could cost us our lives. Because the result of the kingdom of God coming to earth is resistance. And believers enter the fray. Jesus is asking us Listen, to put our lives on the line. It's going to get real, too. It's hard. It's going to get real. The uh, scroll that we're about to see Jesus open... It had seven seals, drops of wax with the king's insignia on it. And Jesus is the only one who, who is the king and who knows the father. And he's the only one that can flip those seals off the scroll. And the scroll represents all of human history, the world's history, your history, and your children's history. It's all in that scroll. And Jesus is going to unroll it and reveal it. And the whole story is about Revelation 4 and 5, which we've lived the last two weeks, about the worship and the essence of heaven, getting to Revelation 21, the new heaven and the new earth, but come to earth. So the whole story of God is the lamb at the center. We follow him wherever he goes, and the kingdom of God is coming from up there to down here. That's the story that we find ourselves in. Now, every one of us in this room and everyone you know believes in a story that defines their reality. No one, not a single human being, has ever lived a moment of their life without faith in a story. However you explain what this world is, why we're here, and what happens after we die, you believe a story, a theory, accepted by faith. Revelation is calling us to challenge our stories. What do we believe about this earth, about history, about where we're going. There was a Japanese, or a Chinese, sorry, a Chinese online uh, network company called Weibo. And in 2013, they did a research on tweet and tweeting. And over a six-month period in 2013, they monitored 70 million tweets. Do you know what they discovered to be the prevailing online emotion, what would you guess? Anger, rage. They brought in a scholar to examine the rage, and the scholar concluded this. Most people's definition of reality is that the world should be getting better. I mean, if you look at the scientific progress we've made, the technological progress, the informational progress we've made, it seems like the world should be getting better and better. So when we have events that happen in our world that show us, yes, we've made technological and scientific progress, but there's still something broken in the human heart, 
The prevailing rage of having your story challenged is anger. Anger. What story do you believe in? How's your rage? You know, sadly, I think we even see rage in the church parking lot. Chapter 6, when Jesus opens the seven seals and begins to unroll history, the conclusion is that the world is shot through with evil. At the end of chapter 6 comes the dramatic question, who can stand? And chapter 7 tells us that the Christian can stand because the Christian belongs to God and is bold in prayer. Now, the world is shot through with evil. Jesus takes the scroll. I want to remind you that as he flips these seals, he's not yet unrolling the scroll. In other words, we're not getting to the end of the end of this age. We're not getting into the judgments and terror. That'll become next week's message. Come back and bring a friend. This week's message, the opening of the seven seals, is about our time. This world, the history that we know, how do we frame it in our story? What is going on here? That's today, and that's what these six seals tell us. So Jesus takes the scroll, and he takes the first seal, flicks it open. A a living creature from around the throne says, come and outrides a white horse. Now, first observation. The first four seals are all how our earth looks from the earth. The last three seals are how the earth looks from heaven. The first four seals are famously called the four horsemen. Isn't it interesting that when John wants to describe our history, our current experience as a human race, he chooses the symbol of a horse. Why? Because in the ancient world, a horse was a symbol of war. The common characteristic of our human history is war. We know this. I think if we're honest with ourselves, with God, we we know this. Where does war come from? Why is war prevalent in human existence? Basically because since we push God away, our primary mode of operation is self-interest and self-preservation. And in a world where the primary motivating factor of individuals and nations and people groups is self-interest and self-preservation, war happens. Jesus' half-brother James puts it this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. As much as I love Billy Joel and he's one of my heroes in high school, I respectfully disagree. We did start the fire. 
It was always burning since the world was turning. We did start the fire. And it's a horse that rides out. It's a white horse. It's a white horse, and some think it's Jesus riding on the white horse. I don't think it is. Some think it's Jesus because they go to the vision in Revelation 19, where we do see Jesus on a white horse, but there are swords coming out of his mouth in Revelation 19 and many crowns on his head. Here in Revelation 6, it's not a sword, it's a bow, the Roman symbol of conquest. And it's not many crowns on his head, it's one crown that's given to him so that he can have authority in this present age. The rider of the white horse is not Jesus. I don't, I don't think it's Jesus either because I think what John's doing is alluding to a historical situation that happened 600 years ago when the prophet Zechariah said that he was going to send out forces, God was, to patrol the earth and they were going to be of horses of a different color. And the four horses there operated as one unit. And I think the four horses in Revelation 6 operate as one unit. And lastly, remember that we keep pounding this into our small groups that Revelation can't mean anything now that it didn't mean to the first readers. And it's a very interesting historical situation you have going on when John's writing this in that the most feared military force in the Roman Empire was a group of 10 confederations east of the Euphrates River called the Parthians. Guess what the symbol of the Parthians was? A white stallion. And guess who rode the white stallions for the Parthian force? The greatest archers in the world. They were the only military army that Rome never defeated. I think what you have here riding the white horse, what you have here influencing our history as human beings is a spirit of conquest. That describes our age, conquest. When one nation wants to make itself great, again, at the expense of every other nation, whether by active aggression or passive neglect, that is a spirit of conquest. That's the characteristic of our age. Spirit of conquest leads to the second seal. Jesus takes the scroll again, flicks up the second seal, and the living creature says, come, and a red horse rides out into our history. A red horse symbolizing blood. And it makes logical sense that from a spirit of conquest, you would next have a horse riding that is one of war and slaughter. Now, there are times in history, I believe, I know there are pacifists at Waterstone, and we could have a great cup of coffee and discuss this. I believe that there are times for just war, when God calls certain human governments to wield the sword in order to stop an evil in the world. Many don't believe that, they, many believe that war is never right. I would agree with them in this statement. War is never God's intended best. When you have human beings killing each other, that's not what God intended when he made the world. Jesus never rides the red horse. War is always bad. It's always tragic, and it's never what God had originally intended. Now, I think framing the story, how do we explain our existence right now? 
I think with great pride, we look back over the last 100 years. I like to bury people. Well, I didn't mean to say it that way. I like to bury people. I bury a lot of people. And it's always interesting uh, when I bury an old person, how you, you find out they were born in like 1918. And you begin to think, man, when they were born, they didn't have indoor plumbing. Uh, they didn't, they, their main transportation was horse and buggy. And uh, the way they talked to each other was to actually go face to face and have a conversation. And in their lifetime, if they've lived to be 80 or 90 years, what have they seen? Can you imagine? We do have indoor plumbing. And we've done moonshots. And what was only thought as a scientific movie of Star Trek to carry around these beepers that we could talk to each other without wires? I mean, we have self. Can you imagine what they've seen? We look back over the last 100 years and we think, wow, the science advancement, the technological advancement, the human information advancement. But do you know what else the last 100 years have been known for, the 20th century? The red horse. Gary Halligan, the International Justice Mission. The outcome in the 20th century could be described in various ways, but I would just call it an open mouth grave. An entire generation of European youth composting the World War I battlefields of Verdun and Somme. Hitler's six million Jews, Stalin's 20 million Soviet citizens, Mao's tens of millions of political enemies and peasant famine victims, Pol Pot's two million Cambodians, the Interhom's million Tutsi Rwandans, and the millions of lives wasted away during apartheid's 40-year reign. The red horse describes our age. Jesus takes the third seal, flips it open. The living creature from the throne says, come, and it's a black horse. Because when you have a spirit of conquest that leads to wars, there are places in the world then that become severely famished. Famine. It says the symbol is the scale. Food is rationed and weighed, and the prices are exorbitantly inflated. The, the figures given in the verse by John would be 8 to 16 times the price of normal food costs in his day, except for oil and wine. And here again, you have an historical situation playing out. Domitian, who was the emperor of Rome when John is writing, saw that there were places in the Roman Empire that were under severe famine, so he uh, passed local legislation in places to allow people to come in and cut down the orchards and the vineries. And the pushback from the rich was so strong that they had to stay the executive order. The rich cannot live without their oil and wine. Which makes us remember that famine is not just about the lack of food. A civilization is experiencing famine when it has most of what it does not need and does not have little of what it really needs. And in that way, America is one of the most famished places on earth. 
Eugene Peterson writes about it this way in his commentary on Revelation. The greed is glorified under the sacrosanct phrase, higher standard of living, and used to excuse everyday insanity. We put millions of people to work at idiot jobs to make machines that pollute the air we breathe so that we can move rapidly from one place to another in projectiles at lethal speeds, killing and maiming other millions more than have died in all wars ever fought on the earth. I put this bracket in. There was an article in the Post last week, maybe you saw it, that when the economy is good, more people are killed in car crashes. 2016, 40,000 people were killed on American roads. So that we have more time to sit before outrageously priced electronic devices that flicker with forms of flesh fantasies that attempt to convince us, usually successfully, that we must have oil and wine luxuries for which we must go back to the idiot jobs to make the lethal machines. Ouch. Let's have coffee after. Seal four. Jesus opens it. The living creature says, come, and there's a black horse. I'm sorry, a pale horse, ashen. It says that the rider of this horse has a name, death. And following this horse, it's zombie land, all the dead. A fourth of the earth which is, I think, symbolic for just massive deadness. You know, have you realized this? That as many new hospitals as we build and as many new healthcare plans that we pass legislation for, we still keep dying. Okay. Looking at the earth for our age, our current history, the four horsemen say that here are the operative forces that make our world our world. Conquest, war, famine, death. Are the Christians exempt from all this? Do we get a pass? Seal five. Now the perspective switches to heaven. And what we see in heaven is a large group of people that are going to be described in chapter 7, but it's the martyrs. And it's said that their blood, they're, they're under the altar, which means they've given their lives in sacrifice for something greater than themselves, the kingdom of God. And they're crying out, how long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the land, until you avenge our blood? And that leads Jesus to open seal 6. And seal six means that when the martyrs pray in seal five, heaven explodes with activity. The sun is blocked. The moon is draped. The stars fall from the sky. The skies are rolled up like a scroll. God steps back and says, okay, people, you run and run the world. You think you know how to do it? It's yours. And that is the setting for going into next week, the end of the world as we know it. God steps back and he says, okay, you've got it. This world is shot through with evil. The end of chapter six in the sixth seal, who can stand? And the answer, the Christian can stand, 
in this time. Why? Because the Christian belongs to God and the Christian is bold in prayer. We go to chapter 7. There's an interlude before the seventh seals open. There's this interlude. And, and John, this is interesting. When Hebrew poets wanted to make rhymes, they didn't rhyme sounds like horse and of course. They rhymed meanings like hear and see. It's saying the same thing twice but using different words. And so John hears this group of people, the martyrs, and he hears a number. 144,000 is the number of these people in heaven in the fifth seal. Don't you think, first of all, that's a suspiciously tidy number? (laughs) It is. I think it's symbolic. I think it's poetic. I think what John is saying there in this 144,000, the witnesses who've lost their lives in pursuit of the kingdom of God, is that everyone who's supposed to be part of that group is part of that group. It's a complete number. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. And we see it in Revelation 21. When the new heaven and earth come down, the new earth, in the city of Jerusalem, there's a wall around the city. Guess how many gates it has? 12, and they're named after the 12 tribes of Israel. And then each section of the wall has a name. It's named after the 12 apostles. 12 times 12. Tribes of Israel, the apostles of Jesus. And the gates say that they welcome everyone from every tribe and language and tongue and nation walk through those gates. In other words, what we envision here is a new humanity. Israel and the church grafted in to a new humanity. And right now, during this age, anyone who stands up for the kingdom and loses their life in that pursuit is part of that 144,000, that complete people of God. It's also interesting that when they're listed, as Ginny read, all the tribes, there's some interesting stuff in there, briefly. First of all, it's the only time that the 12 tribes of Israel are listed with Judah first. Now, why do you think Judah would be first? Who came from Judah? Jesus. Everything changed since Jesus came. Judah's first. And then the tribe of Dan is completely left out of the listing. Why? Because they were the first tribe to apostatize and go worship Baal. And then Manasseh is entered in. Manasseh was Joseph's son, a grandson of Israel, which means all the generations now are entering. This is a new Israel with the church and Gentiles grafted in. And then, that's what John hears, 144,000. And then when he looks up, he sees a mass of people that no one can number. But what's the point? All that was fun. What's the point? The point is that every single person who has ever believed in Jesus and decided to follow his kingdom gets the seal on their forehead. Revelation 7, 4. Now, I don't know if that's literal or true. It, the word is often in the Old Testament used as a tattoo. In fact, it comes from Ezekiel 9 when the city of Israel was crushed and Israel was taken into exile. God brought some of them back and they put a mark on their forehead. And the job of those who were sealed was to walk the city and weep for what happened. They were to be the hearts of God walking around. Now, I've told you before, I have a strong conviction. I just... I will never get a tattoo. I don't have any tattoos. I will never get one. It's not a biblical conviction, but I'm just convicted of this. Some cathedrals just don't need stained glass. 
But if God asks me to get a tattoo on my forehead, I will. You see, the seal says that anyone who follows Jesus belongs to God. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians chapter 1 when he writes that anyone who has, has followed Jesus gets the Holy Spirit in them. And that means they're sealed, they're protected, they're owned by God. The point The reason Christians will walk through this world that's defined by the four horsemen and stand strong, even though it costs their life, the reason they walk is because they know they belong to God. What does that mean? That means that even on the worst day of our life, when we die, it's an upgrade. A Christian walks around with that conviction that the last word on their life and death belongs to Jesus. And do you know what that last word is? Resurrection. What would happen, Waterstone, if we really believed that? That we belong to God, we're sealed with his spirit, and that even though they kill us for our work in the kingdom... We get to go home. What would happen if we believed that? Would we not take some bold risks in our life? Would we not pray some audacious prayers? Would our lives become much more than trying to find a parking space close to the entrance? What would happen if we know we belong to God? I grieve the condition of the American church. I've spent a year in Revelation. It's put me on my back and on my knees. I'm convinced that God has waterstone in Revelation for these times. Because when I look at the American church, you know what I see? I see our heads down. I see us so worried. I see us trying to pass legislation against the four horsemen. I see us trying to eliminate crosses from our life. I see us just spending so much time on Facebook trying to win our political debates. When all we're doing is resisting picking up the cross. We're not to eliminate the crosses. We're to pick them up. Do you know why the church is thriving and exploding in China and Africa and India? It's because those people have crosses everywhere around them. They have no rights, no votes, no freedom. All they have is Jesus. And their whole calling is to display the kingdom to the world. And they pick up their cross and they walk on. What would happen if we really believed We are a citizen of heaven who belongs to God. The Christian will stand, though the world is shot through with evil, because they are bold in prayer. Not only do they belong in God, but they're bold in prayer. This whole text of 6 and 7 is filled with prayer. Think about it with me. All the living creatures are praying the Lord's prayer. Come, 
come up there, down here, come. And the martyrs are praying the Psalms. How long, Lord? How long? And then in chapter 6, even the pagans are praying because it's going to get so bad when God withdraws his hand that they're yelling for the rocks, fall on me, hide me from the wrath of the lamb. And I believe that even a prayer to the lamb in their last breath gets you where you need to go. Everyone's praying. The universe we live in is a prayer-shaped universe. Every breath in is up there, down here, up there, down here. The universe is praying. And that's why the seventh seal, where it ends, this age, is with a half hour of silent prayer. John is drawing there on a Talmudic tradition. It's interesting. The, The Jews believed in John's day that the angels only sing at night. And they keep quiet during the day because God wants to hear his people praying during the day in 30-minute watches. What would Waterstone be? What would the American church be if we really believed in prayer? What would we become if we realized that history belongs to the intercessors? Would we pray understanding the fifth seal leads to the sixth seal, that when the martyrs pray how long, heaven explodes? That's why Eugene Peterson, taking a line from George Herbert, says prayer is reversed thunder. It shakes up heaven. If we really believe that, I know some people that did. The early church believed that. In Acts chapter 4, everyone's being taken to jail. The church is on their knees praying Psalm 2. John, writing the revelation from the island of Patmos, a prisoner. We don't ever know if he got out. He probably died on that island. Do you think some of his last thoughts were, man, I've given my life to Jesus. I've given my life to the kingdom. I, I hope it lasts. How about the Apostle Paul writing to the Roman church? Nothing will separate you from the love of God, not famine, not sword, not peril. Nothing will separate you from the Son of God, from the love of God. And then these Christians in the Roman church being dragged into the Colosseum where they would become halftime entertainment at the Roman Super Bowl. There's the emperor sitting him in the stadium box. It's halftime and the chariot races and the gladiator fights. Oh, let's just watch a few Christians run from the lions. Can you imagine if you were one of those Christians, the last thing you would see, you'd look up as the lions are coming out, it would be the Roman emperor, the most powerful man, most powerful force in the history of the world. You'd be looking at them saying, really? This, my death, is going to mean anything beyond them? Have you checked lately? Have you checked what's standing In the Roman emperor's box in the Roman Colosseum, I have a picture for you. Here's what's standing where the emperor sat. Does prayer move the earth? I know another person who believed in prayer. His name was Jesus. He prayed. He prayed three times in the Gospel of Mark when it was noticed by the public. The first time was in chapter 1 when he was healing everybody in Galilee, but he was tired 
And so he stepped back for probably a half hour of prayer to be with his father. He could have healed the whole world. He stepped back. Mark chapter 6, he feeds a crowd of 20,000 people from a happy meal. And the crowds press him to become king. He could have gathered the largest crowd in the history of the world, preached the gospel, and saved everybody. But he steps back. They couldn't find him. Where was he? Probably in that 30-minute prayer talking to his dad. Mark chapter 14, the last time he prays. They're coming after him. Judas betrays him. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but yours be done. He steps back. He does not save his own life. He just prays. Jesus believed in prayer. He could have healed everyone. He could have preached to everyone. But he teaches us this one important thing. Prayer is not to get what we want. Prayer is to get God whom we need. And when we understand that the reason we pray is to get the Father and his love as our treasure, that's when we understand that we belong to God, bold in prayer, we can do anything for him. Anything. When we're bold in prayer. When we know the Father loves us, then we don't need human acceptance, we don't need human comfort, and we don't need human control to be happy because we have the treasure and that half hour of prayer. Have you reckoned lately? Prayer helps us reckon. Paul said it this way, I reckon that these present circumstances are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us as the children of God. Let's pray. I'd like us to pray with the Quakers today. If you're comfortable doing this, would you just extend your, your arms out over your lap with your palms down? We're going to spend just a few minutes with the Father. Palms down mean that we're going to let go of some things and give them to the Father. So with our palms down, is there a sin in our life that we need to let go of? Confess it. Tell the Father again you want to stop. You want to repent. You want to turn. Do it again. Christianity is about mulligans again and again and again. Do it. Give it up to him. Some of us need to let go of a relationship that we've tried to control. We want love. We want them to be fixed. We want them to be well. But you can't fix another person. Let go of it. Put it in the Father's hands. Let go of the control. Some of us need to let go of a fear. What are you scared of? What are you scared of losing? Our fears tell us what we treasure more than God. What are you so scared of? Let it go. Some of us need to let go of a loss. We've mourned and mourned and mourned for years. Some ways you never get over that kind of loss, but in other ways, we need to let some of that go to the Father. Let him lift us up. Do you need to let go of a broken heart? Put it into his hands. Father, hear our prayers. Now would you turn your hands over? What do you need from the Father? What do you need? Tell him. Do you need love? 
He loves you so, so much. When we know we belong to him, that he loves us, we have what we need. Do you need joy? The conviction that nothing here is the last word on your life? That the only opinion of you that counts is God's opinion? Ask for joy. Ask for forgiveness. Ask to be bathed in grace again. Ask for purpose. What do you need from your father? Ask him. Now we pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.